0: Bovard. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky.
1: And I'm Ben Weingarten.
2: And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so, welcome back, everybody. We have a full agenda of um, multiple diverse topics today, which I think are gonna be pretty interesting. Um, Emily is gonna talk about the burgeoning labor movement and how it may intersect with the right. Uh, Josh is gonna take us on a more international bent uh, about sort of how we reclaim Western sovereignty uh, on a national level. Um, Ben's gonna talk about DOJ's domestic terrorism narrative actually falling apart in court, uh, which is kind of interesting. And then I'm gonna close this out on why American teens are so sad, which is actually as
0: depressing as it sounds. So with that, we'll kick it over to Emily Emily to start. Thanks, Rachel. Um, who, I guess to Rachel, I, I probably qualify as a teenager. Um, so maybe I can tell you guys why I'm so sad. There. <laughs> um, well, we're gonna start off by talking about the JFK 8 vote to unionize that, that JFK 8 warehouse um, in, on Staten Island of uh, the Amazon, uh, which in Amazon has fought bitterly, attempts to unionize its warehouses. Um, but I tried to dig into this uh, for the Federalists to determine you know, sort of as a, a pro worker conservative, if in fact there was a case for that union at JFK8, I wrote about it for the Federalists, and would love to talk to you guys all about um, this entire situation. We talked a bit about Bessemer last year, um, and that vote to union that unionization vote failed in 2021. Um, and it's possible that Amazon is the is on the cusp of a bunch of its warehouses being unionized, which the company, of course, it sees that first domino, which JFK turned out to be, as a, a major threat to its bottom line because it is all about the, the level of productivity and efficiency um, and that's why Amazon has been, for the customer, so insanely efficient. Um, you can you know, f- just dream up whatever you want and it's at your doorstep in a couple of hours. Um, and, and so that's built into its business model and, and any threats to that efficiency, like a union which might question, for instance, the creepy uh, surveillance that it conducts on its workers to track every second of their productivity and report them uh, in certain cases and even Even according to some reporting like fire people through this like automated tracking system which Amazon denies actually happens um, a union would certainly be a threat to that and that's in fact one of the reasons um, that you know after talking to Wells King of American Compass um, and some other people who know this stuff really well on both sides of it um, I think it's pretty clear that Amazon needs a unionization threat Um, and maybe it's not good for the American economy if every single Amazon warehouse unionizes? I don't know, uh, but we have one example and that's an independent Union that is not affiliated with any of these big labor uh, unions. So for those folks who are, you're trying to figure out, you know, we have corrupt big labor and we have corrupt big business, um, and you know, what is the solution for the worker that's caught in between these two things? Um, and this is an independent union, so it loses some of those benefits of being connected to uh, big labor, meaning uh, not the benefits of corruption, but the benefits of you know, sort of resources and institutional might, um, and. And so they're in negotiations now, and maybe it'll turn out to be toothless. We don't know. But again, uh, the the clear substantiating reasons that I found was Amazon's uh, rate of serious incidents uh, in terms of injuries at its warehouses are double that of its competitors. And this is not like some union study. This is the numbers that Amazon has to report to OSHA, Um, like way higher, for instance, than Walmart, way higher than that. Um, And then on the other hand, it is also these sort of surveillance uh, technologies that they uh, use on their workers. And these are clearly two reasons in and of themselves that it makes sense for Amazon to start unionizing. Um, And we can also think like Marco Rubio did at one point when he was talking about Bessemer, that woke corporations, might need, you know, employees might need uh, organized, collective ways to bargain against uh, their employers forcing sort of woke stuff down their throats at some point. Um, And I'll just conclude by saying, I think it's very worth all of us keeping in mind uh, that the same sort of lack of character and moral grounding um, that informs the woke Capitalism um, that we see at all these corporations, remember that's also the foundation, the moral foundation that informs how they treat their workers. Um, and that's bad news for American workers. So, uh, with that, I, I think this was a, a pretty consequential vote. Um, we're seeing this at Starbucks, uh, places around the country. So, which also struggles with wokeness, you have workers saying they feel like they're being forced to be social workers, um, untrained social workers, because Starbucks lets anyone use their restrooms, um, leading to all these confrontations. So again, you have wokeness sort of clashing with the interests of workers. So, with that, I'll, I'll toss it open to the group.
2: Yeah, I think this is a really, I don't, I think you're right to highlight it as consequential because, you know. The distinction between this and the Bessemer vote is very real in the sense that if there was ever going to be, and I've, I think I've said this before, a resurgence of the right-leaning labor movement, it had to be disconnected from, you know, the sort of national groups that actively hate the right. You know, you can't sort of expect the right to support a labor movement that's thrown itself in with an architect, you know, an infrastructure and an architecture that tries to like actively, you know, harm our coalition. So I do think that this is a really interesting development and it's one that I think, the right should pay attention to you know it's it, what a right leaning labor movement would look like i think is still being defined and i think you know there's pitfalls they could fall into and positive developments they could make but to ignore it i think would be wrong and even more so now when you have amazon which in you know is a new business model bent on as emily pointed out you know a, a human harm in some circumstances this is not you know this hasn't worker safety i don't think has been prioritized at all at amazon and this is something that you know we on the right i think should care about you know we can't just say you know point and say look you know business is doing great while they're you know and at the same time you know talk about human dignity without actually i think engaging on this point so i'm curious to see where it goes i'm i I do think it's a big watershed
3: so I agree that's a big watershed. I, I obviously agree with Rachel that it is extremely important, and this is an independent labor union. It's uh, the ALU, if I remember the acronym correctly, Amazon Labor Union. It's not affiliated with one of the gigantic, kind of mega, like Democratic Party stump speech giving kind of edifices that kind of wants to send us all to the gulags. I mean, when it kind of takes me back to, I remember at NACON Orlando. So this is kind of like the end of the last October, early November. That first night dinner, um, when I, th- I think did Glenn, I think Glenn Glenn R- Lowry gave a keynote that first night. Josh Holly certainly gave his kind of keynote speech on men on manliness, manhood that first night. I, I was sitting this dinner with um Sora with Sora Mari, and I remember we, we were kind of talking and we were kind of saying how for a certain generation, obviously like the, the phraseology, the linguistics of kind of Marxism and cultural Marxism, I think kind of predominates in terms of like what kind of conservatives are railing against. But I think for kind of a a, a younger kind of growing generation, which sees kind of big tech, you know, woe capital and kind of just corporate predations in in general, the critique is less so-called Marxism than it is neoliberalism. And, you know, sure enough, I think a lot of the speeches at kind of the NatCon Orlando and NatCon Brussels conference that I was also just at kind of do decry the excesses of neoliberals. I mean, so far as neoliberalism has become kind of synonymous with kind of just giving these big corporations, these big companies, anything and everything they want at all costs. Conservatives should absolutely oppose that. We should oppose that because these corporations hate us. And not only do they hate us individually and hate what we stand for, they hate our country. They hate the very kind of moral foundations of this country. As anyone who is even like a cursory kind of familiarity with Chris Ruffo and the likes of what he and some of his contemporaries are doing should be able to intuit here. But real quick, one other thing that I want to just do real quick here, we, we, we've done this in a previous kind of podcast segment, but I think it's kind of worth re-upping here. This notion that, you know, that we have to be vehemently anti-private labor union at any and all cost public sector union, totally different question. Let's cabin that for a second. The notion that we have to be totally Anti private labor union as a matter of of economic theory, I think is just totally misplaced. So, you know, I'm quoting here from an essay Michael Lind wrote two years ago. He's quoting here Adam Smith, okay, literally at the godfather of like modern free market economics. Adam Smith wrote, quote, in all such disputes, the master can hold out much longer. A landlord, a farmer, a master manufacturer, or merchant, though they did not employ a single workman, could generally live a year or two upon the stocks which they have already acquired. Many workmen cannot subsist a week, few could subsist a month, and scarce any a year without employment. In the long run, the workman may be as necessary to his master as his master is to him, but the necessity is not so immediate. I, I mean, it's hard to like come away reading writings like that and kind of think that modern day market economics is predicated upon this like caricatured hatred of the working man. That's not what we're supposed to stand for. It is this kind of like re- overly kind of libertarianized kind of like big corporate heavy donorized mentality that I think has kind of predominated right of certain discourse for decades. It's, t- it's time for that to go away now though and this hopefully is kind of a good moment for Republicans to actually seize upon and obviously kind of get the rhetoric and ultimately their policies to kind of match that sentiment.
1: Um, so I'll, I'll make a couple, I think, optimistic comments here. The first is, I think it's notable that this was an independent union rather than a big labor union. And to the extent there is a, a crack in the edifice of big labor, I think almost assuredly that's an unallied good. Not to say that independent labor unions might not be far more radical potentially. And my understanding is that some of the organizers behind this particular a union certainly would not be ideological bedfellows, but set that to the side. I'll try to stay optimistic here. Second point, of course, is that this does highlight the disconnect between the rhetoric or the aura, at least around Amazon as you know a woke friendly kind of company and shows the hypocrisy that that is sort of used as a shield to block out, to obfuscate from the reality for workers here. And you know, as Emily was speaking, I was thinking to myself, You know, I've talked a lot in the past about how we have a burgeoning sort of social credit system with American characteristics. This is that model in microcosm, it, the Amazon model. Maybe it's a social credit system with Amazon characteristics. And so there's the panopticon within the company itself, and we see how that's applied. And I believe they have an internal communication system. It, it might already be up uh, where certain words are completely censored precisely because they don't want employees talking about things like The fact that truck drivers actually have to uh, use the restroom in their trucks, on their routes, things like that. So uh, to to the extent that this exposes the depredations of Amazon, the hypocrisy, the disconnect, I think that is also a good thing. Now, ultimately, in this battle between independent labor unions and the likes of Amazon, I'm not sure we necessarily want either side to win, per se. But the fact that there is a potential union threat to our ruling class, and when you think about the ramifications of that potential threat, more broadly and how they would ripple through American society, that might actually prove ultimately a good thing because the ruling class poses a far greater threat, I think, to the American way of life than the unions who are challenging them might pose.
0: And honestly, these like thousands of Amazon union workers around the country just need to have basic safety measures taken care of. Um, and I, I hope that immediate goal is, is increasingly uh, met.
3: Yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, we'll transition, but just like kind of put like a final kind of cap on that. I mean, kind of uh, that honestly is like the most important point here, obviously, right? I mean, kind of forget about like that theory that I was just talking about. Yeah. I mean, like these, these, these are like human beings, <laughs> like, like they should be able to like urinate without going in a bottle, for goodness sake. But um, we'll come back to that maybe in final thoughts, but let's uh, for, um, for now transition. So I wrote my column last week, kind of just trying to like observe what's happening in a few different countries around the world and trying to see if I can kind of weave together similar themes. And ideally, obviously, from an American perspective, seeing what lessons we can kind of draw from like a right-of-center, conservative bent. So I I kind of looked at four countries' recent or still ongoing events in particular. Um, And those four countries are Hungary, France, uh, Ukraine, and Israel. So kind of just going like country by country, starting in Hungary, of course. I'm not sure if we've covered on this podcast yet, but Hungary recently had an election, uh, Prime Minister Orban's party, the Fidesz party, which is kind of an, an avowedly, explicitly national conservative party, faced this kind of, uh, you know, a comical unified opposition that literally included everyone from kind of communists to uh, literally self-described fascists. They basically kind of all teamed up to try to topple Orban and Fidesz. Obviously, come the Soros network, went into kind of high gear here, among other kind of international malefactors. Um, Fidesz actually didn't just win. They actually picked up seats um, in the Hungarian parliament, which I think we can only kind of interpret as kind of, you know, a, a, you know an anti-EU, kind of an anti-Brussels sentiment, uh, you know, a, a good development, certainly, for kind of the National Conservatism Project. Um, uh, you know, moving over to France. So this past Sunday, France had their first of their kind of two rounds of their multi-pronged presidential election process. Uh, Emmanuel Macron, who is kind of the incumbent president, he is uh, every so often he says something like vaguely kind of woke skeptical, you might say, but he is certainly kind of firmly center left, very neoliberal to kind of use the term that I used last segment. Definitely kind of a fan of European integration and globalism and things of that nature. So he basically barely prevailed in the first round of the of the French presidential. Um, elections over Marine Le Pen, um, who comes from a uh, somewhat famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, family in French politics, the Le Pen family, formerly of the National Front, um, you know, Jean-Marie Le Pen, the former party leader, had a, a, a checkered history, I guess you might say, as pertains to kind of uh, some comments about the Holocaust, things like that. Marine Le Pen is taking it in, an, in a more mainstream uh, direction. She herself is very kind of uh, EU skeptical, uh, it definitely is very un I think, to put it mildly when it comes to kind of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Um, I think she was kind of helped there also by kind of the Overton window shifting effect of uh, Eric Zemmour's independent run, who kind of ran even further to Le Pen's right. The point is that Macron and Le Pen are now in kind of a runoff that will happen in two Sundays from now, and it's basically a dogfight. I mean, Macron's probably a slight favorite if you're if you're going to go bet in, in Caesars or Bellagio in Vegas, but it, it's a legitimately close call. Moving on then to Ukraine, we've obviously covered this issue, um, you know, ad nauseum over the past two two months on this podcast. Um, The point here is that no matter what your stance is, on kind of calls for greater American or NATO involvement, and I for one, I think all four of us really have been kind of um, opposed, certainly to kind of uh, greater escalation measures, I think, to put it mildly, but the point is still from kind of a NatCon nationalism perspective, you know, what we've seen from Ukraine to kind of withstand kind of, um, you know, Putin and Russian revanchism is definitely inspiring, right. Um, And then kind of moving to our fourth example there. Um, which is Israel. So, uh, you know, they've, they, they've had this crazy coalition now for a little less than a year, uh, kind of similar to the anti-Orban coalition in Hungary. They had an anti-Netanyahu coalition where they did successfully knock him off by a bare 61-59 um, majority. It was this ridiculous coalition that included like a Muslim Brotherhood uh, aligned uh, Islamist party. Uh, long story short, they just had one defection, making it a pure 60-60 split right now. So, um, you know, The point there is is that this deeply unstable kind of anti-nationalist coalition there could not stand. So the point is, I, I think if you look at all these places, you kind of see kind of a current theme, which is kind of we the people kind of reclaiming a sense of our own nationality, our own nationhood, and rebelling against kind of external or globalist forces. And then the question, obviously, is what you know, we on the domestic front, the Republican Party, what conservatives, what all of us can actually do, if anything, to kind of take those lessons and kind of take the momentum into the 2022 midterms and ultimately 2024. So for the sake of time, I'll kind of just throw it open on that question. Maybe I'll kind of reserve my own thoughts on that for final thoughts.
2: You know, it's, this question is kind of interesting to me because I think you're right, right, in terms of all the anecdotal evidence that sort of the base in these countries is sort of responding with a resurgence of nationalism and patriotism and and, and a feeling that we've been spread, you know, too thin. The global community is fine, but it's not a priority. But what's interesting is that I, there, you know, there's a key to a link that it doesn't exist in any of these countries. I think between the base and the elite. I'm writing this piece right now for a symposium at Claremont about Taking on China. And as I've said many times before in this podcast, like you cannot actually have a nationalist, you know, American policy that takes on China the same way we did Russia when you have your financial elite, your tech elite, you know, your immigration system, even all incentivizing this global entanglement. So I think that the next phase of this discussion has to be okay, you know, we've seen this groundswell of support for a certain approach. How is it going to trickle up? How is it actually going to be reflected in the policies in these countries, including our own? And I think that's the next challenge for the right is to push policies that actually do that.
3: Don't all jump in at once, Ben and Emily.
1: All right, I'll say, I'll say briefly, um, yeah, where is the Republican Party? Like what, you know, it's interesting, like our elites always talk about getting on the right side of history and look what the right side of history is globally. And they, they don't want to follow in the footsteps of, uh, the, the movements that we're seeing at the grassroots level around the globe, because they're on the other side. Ultimately, they view it as a threat to their power and privilege. So I think if, if you're a politician and you're acting in your own self-interest, it behooves you to listen to your, at your actual constituents rather than you know, your friends in Washington, D.C. Um, but I, I, I just continually go back to the question, and I'll do it in the next segment as well, where is Republican leadership on this? Where is the party infrastructure on this? There is a huge opportunity here to make America a better place for Americans. But to Rachel's point, the problem is that we have elite capture in this country and the elites effectively have imbibed an un-American, if not in practice, anti-American ideology. That That is their ethos. Their ethos is transnational globalist progressivism. And the tens of millions of Americans who reject that they cast as terrorists and try to censor and crush using all the levers of power. So and and I and I'd say it's on a uniparty basis because again, what percentage of members of the House or senators actually speak in the language of these sorts of movements globally? Well, no, they subscribe to this, this disingenuous, dishonest, really grotesque in how they end up applying it to the domestic political seen paradigm of well you know it's democracy versus the authoritarians which is not really of course the breakdown but that's what they use demagogically to try and put down their political opponents and until they break from that paradigm and actually get right with where the people are I think we're going to continue to see wheel spinning in terms of our purported representatives
0: yeah well you know I actually just did a podcast or taped a podcast that'll air in the next week or so with a historian uh, a, a pretty notable historian um world war on world war ii issues who has a new book out and his idea of world war ii or his theory of world war ii is that it's sort of the the great imperial war the last imperial war um and one Sort of question I asked him was to what extent this sort of uh, changes that technology has induced on in modern life um, has given rise to the nation state um, and and has has sort of taken away what uh, Putin's view of the world, the sort of imperial uh, idea of of how this, which I don't even know if that's accurate, but like the idea of imperialism, which used to be a norm for centuries, um, and you know how it's how it's given way to one thing, but It's really interesting to consider actually that that was a process that's taking us to transnationalism, right? That this is like what we have in this interconnectedness in these groups because of like atomic technology um, and nuclear technology like NATO, um, that have really developed because there are nations that band together to make the threat of, of warfare even more dramatic in, in ways that they can because we now have telephones and, uh, well, Zoom um, and, and everything else. It, it really makes transnationalism uh, sort of a, a sexy and tempting, a, a sexy intellectual temptation for the global elite because it works great for them. It's it's the best way for them to have money and power. Um, And and so I think broadly, that is a really important lens to see all of these sort of geopolitics through um, going forward and not just geopolitics, but also business um, going forward, because it's very much coming from people who do see themselves more as like citizens of the world than um, citizens of you know, particular localities that are communities that share cultures, languages, foods, everything else. Um, it, we're going into a very different era uh, for humanity.
3: Well, speaking of a very different era for humanity, nothing has been kind of more harrowing over the past year, year and a half than what Ben, I think, has aptly called the war on wrong think. So there have been some actually positive developments, I think, in the war on wrong think. So why don't you tell us about that?
1: A positive development in terms of uh, what has transpired, terrible in terms of what they have revealed about the corruption within our institutions. And, And that is really what has happened to our institutions. It's not that we badmouth and load those institutions, that those institutions act in ways that make us uh, hold them in, in disregard to the detriment, by the way, of our national security. So with that long lead in, the biggest development of late uh, in the kind of travails of the DOJ and FBI is that, as many recall, there was this purported plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan uh, by people who were portrayed, I think, and may well have been um, militiamen out in her state who opposed things like her coronavirus policies, the draconian policies and the like. And as we know, all of these individuals were apprehended and this plot was exposed basically on the eve of the 2020 election in October of 2020. And of course, everyone from Gretchen Whitmer to Joe Biden and others used this narrative to claim that Donald Trump had incited this, I guess, pre-insurrectionary effort to try to sick. These militiamen or incite these militiamen on Governor Whitmer in this nefarious plot, and we don't know how significant that shift may have been in the run-up to election, particularly in a huge swing state like Michigan, which hinged on, I think, tens of thousands of votes votes ultimately uh, in 2020. We now know that four of the individuals have been let off, two completely acquitted on all charges, uh, people who were part of this purported conspiracy, and then two who were considered the ringleaders ring were let off on basis of a hung jury, and they may well be brought to trial again. But nevertheless, this was a massive loss for the DOJ, but also, I think, a massive loss for America in terms of what it revealed about our DOJ and FBI because these individuals were let off precisely because of their arguments to a jury that they were entrapped. And BuzzFeed, to its credit, did substantial reporting on this in the run-up to these trials. Uh, As they wrote, there were at least 12 confidential informants who assisted in this sprawling investigation. Many of the senior, uh, at least a couple of the senior officials in the FBI who were involved with this effort to work with, as I'll get to in a minute, uh, these purported conspirators, themselves ended up being fired or let go in disgrace. Uh, But set that aside for a minute, as BuzzFeed reported, and I think this was last year, some of those informants acting under the direction of the FBI played a far larger role than has previously been reported. Working in secret, they did more than just passively observe and report on the actions of the suspects. Instead, they had a hand in nearly every aspect of the alleged plot, starting with its inception. The extent of their involvement raises questions as to whether there would have even been a conspiracy without them. That is, the allegation was that it was really FBI agents and informants who concocted this plot and at every step of the way pushed these people to try to execute a plot, and the defense vigorously argued against that they were ever close to executing such a plot, and a grand jury a jury, clearly found this to be a reasonable case, and the DOJ lost in at least two instances resoundingly. Now, there are still eight other people who face charges uh, in the Michigan area, they've all... Um, pled not guilty. So we'll see if they're actually brought to trial ultimately as a consequence of this. As Julie Kelly, who's covered this extensively, one of the few, wrote, wall-to-wall headlines blaming Trump for the Whitmer plot coincided with early voting across the country, including an unprecedented volume of mail-in ballots. It's impossible to know, as I noted, how the coverage, including Whitmer's nonstop publicity tour and Biden's campaign temper tantrums on the subject, influenced voters in swing states such as her own. How could it not? So, you know, the left for a long time has accused the FBI, and the DOJ of concocting plots against Islamist terrorists. And perhaps now we have to look back at some of those cases and see if those claims, those arguments were more credible uh, than than we had assumed at the time. Uh, But this shows, and there is a record, and I believe Glenn Greenwald and others have shown this as well, that when it comes to purported right-wing white supremacist extremists and the like, there's been substantial infiltration since the 90s by federal officials into these organizations. And this exposed it Writ large. And so it raises a broader question of if you have to concoct a plot and try to entrap people to prove this argument that right wing supremacist white supremacist violent extremism is the gravest threat to the homeland, and now it has collapsed in court. What does that mean ultimately about what our DOJ and FBI is up to, particularly now when you just oppose this against the fact that it appears that there was a black nationalist supremacist and, and black nationalist extremists, by the way, have been sort of dropped from the literature of threats to the homeland from our federal officials who apparently shot up a subway station in Brooklyn. Uh, we have the story now of these potential Iranian agents who are out there trying to infiltrate the Secret Service for months on end, who are not apprehended in advance. So there's this juxtaposition of what the FBI tries to concoct and then fails. And then all of these instances where people actually get through the wire and do threaten our homeland. So looking at this, and the question I always go back to is, what ought a Republican Congress to do with respect to our DOJ and FBI? And then what might a Republican president do next time? What has to be done uh, to purge the corruption from these institutions that are being weaponized against the public?
0: I mean, it's incredible. And that's why I think when, Donald Trump started using the term, popularizing the term deep state, it does speak to something important, which is that this is embedded very, 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 very deep um, in our government infrastructure. Um, And it's if you're looking at like, I mean, this is happening with the FBI in Michigan, with the case of Gretchen Whitmer, which is important because um, it's such a crystal clear example of the FBI being involved, involved has been highlighted in nearly every part of the plot. Um, And I I think it just the basic thing that I want to say quickly is um, Ben is exactly right to point to what appears to be a Black nationalist uh, shooting suspect in custody right now in New York um, that was apparently, reports are saying, on the FBI's radar, um, we have a Black nationalist who killed a bunch of people where I grew up in Waukesha um, and we still talk very little about that. The media has very little interest in it. So we live in an alternate reality, right? Like it depends, the reality you live in now depends entirely on the media you consume, the amount of it and the kind of it. Um, and it, a lot of people are living in a completely false reality um, because you could easily be the media and, and pick and choose these stories of, of Black nationalists to say that there's some grave, um, black nationalist domestic terror threat, and I would still say I think you're you're probably overstating things. You know, we have bigger threats to the republic than this. Uh, but uh, in the same way that I would I would say the exact same thing about their claims on on white supremacy domestic terrorism problems. Yes, um, on the level of the FBI's uh, obsession with them. No, so we can't even do basic things as a government anymore because of, of the level of like politicization and uh, like radical cultural ideologies that are being weaponized by people in power our, our government can no longer do complete basic functions that we pay our hard-earned money into the tax system um, to do it, it was just disgusting
3: yeah I mean go the like- other, oh, oh, go ahead go ahead Rachel
2: well I mean I was just gonna say I think to this point like the fact that people were so shocked by this verdict I think tells you how much we just there hasn't been an investigation into what's actually gone on, that we haven't actually had a a, a full airing of of what's happened. And this actually, I've been wondering what House Republicans are going to do with the January 6th select committee, uh, should they take back the House. And, you know, there's various ways to look at it should they get rid of it should they further it but if they keep it, like getting the Capitol Police in front of them and, and investigating what actually happened via the Capitol Police policies and directives. And, you know, if they were told to let people in, all of that are things we don't know. And they seem critical to understanding what actually happened. And obviously, you know, just video enough was enough to compel a judge uh, to say that, you know, you didn't meet the burden of proof here, prosecution. So there's just a lot that's unknown here that, you know, to Emily's point about the media balkanization, but also I think we just haven't investigated it enough.
3: Yeah, I I, I guess what I'll add is, you know, I want to emphasize this kind of, secret service infiltration story, which I think is like a pretty important story in, in and of its own here, which is, um, I, I I haven't necessarily followed it like as intensely as some others have. But if I understand the basic fat pattern correctly, it's that two individuals with incredibly close ties to the Iranian government, I mean, they, they probably are directly on on the dole for Iran through various intermediaries or directly, we don't really know, it's not particularly important to be honest with you. And they have been able to kind of uh, get to people directly responsible for protecting Vice President Harris and some people extremely close to President Biden himself here. They've been, they have done so by kind of just obviously like physically posing as, as fellow federal agents, but also kind of giving like financial inducements for kind of reduced rent and various kind of other opportunities there. Um, you know, a story like that when, um, you, you know, I, 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 Iran is not exactly a China, okay? They are not exactly like, like a massive like geopolitical power that has like a deeply, deeply, deeply kind of sophisticated system of kind of intelligence and cyber warfare and things like that. Iran is still, in many ways, kind of a more primitive actor. It's, a, it's an evil regime, obviously, but it's still kind of they operate in a, in a more primitive fashion. So the fact that they can get that close to Vice President Harris and, and by extension, obviously, President Biden, I mean, th- you know, that should send like an incredible shock down all of our spines as far as just like the gross incompetence um, of, of these institutions there. Um, so to me, that's kind of how I kind of interpret what you're saying, Ben, is I hear things like like the FBI and the CIA and obviously all those institutions do have like many profound problems. Obviously, the late, great Angela Coteville wrote about this issue probably more than anyone else. And, you know, we all wish that he were alive today to continue to kind of tell us about what we would need as far as kind of concrete policy reforms. But this new kind of Secret Service infiltration story, I really think just kind of accentuates just the magnitude of the problem on our hand, because something is just fundamentally rotten top to bottom here. But as far as the Secret Service thing goes, we're not, we're not even talking about ideological bias. That's just like gross incompetence. I mean, if I, if I, if I saw the headline correctly, they we basically found out about this Iranian infiltration from a U.S. Postal Service worker, kind of just, I think by the Postal Service worker's own admission, by luck, he stumbled across like the real identities. I mean, what what the hell? Like what the actual hell? I don't know.
2: Well, on that note, I'll take us somewhere completely different, which is the existential crisis sort of that appears to be facing America's kids. Um, This week, the CDC released uh, new data showing that uh, the highest ever recorded levels of teenage sadness. And so I'll quote from, uh, from the article in The Atlantic, which covered this, from 2009 to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel, quote, persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness, end quote, rose from 26% to 44%. And again, that's the highest we've ever seen that total recorded. And, you know, I saw this reported on in an, a couple of different outlets. But surprisingly, I thought the Atlantic did one of the better jobs in contextualizing it, um, which is unusual for the Atlantic. But um, And what I mean by that is, you know, you obviously have the pandemic and the lockdowns and keeping kids away uh, from their classmates, from, from social engagement. You obviously have that factoring in here. But I think there's a lot more going on here as well. It's not, it wasn't just the pandemic. It, you know, the Atlantic flags social media as another sort of heavy influence in sort of you know, dragging kids down if, for lack of a better term. And I think it's worth worth talking about that point because, you know, this comes back to a debate that I've had a, a number of times, you know, with different sort of policy groups and social groups is that, well, you know, the social, social media's impact on kids is merely the result of parenting choices. Um, and, and that's it. And, you know, it's an either or proposition. And I actually think it's not an either or it's both. It's like, yes, obviously the parenting choices matter, right? When you get, when, or if you give your kid a smartphone matters. But the technology of social media is so ubiquitous um, that I don't know that it can be avoided. It is now you know, how we access you know, the market as adults. But for kids, it's how they access education in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I can't remember if I've talked about it on this podcast before I wrote a piece a couple of years ago about Google's efforts to infiltrate the classroom. Um, I talked about it on Tucker Carlson shortly thereafter, because it is an effort to infiltrate, let's be clear. Google giving free Chromebooks to schools is not an act of benevolence. It's an an act of clientizing a whole slew uh, of young kids that they're not able under the law to get at, right? But when you do it through education, um, you are able to Bypass the federal law, which states that you're not allowed to gather data on kids under 13. Well, schools, when they consent on behalf of parents, that gives Google the green light. And so when teachers are teaching with Chromebooks, when they're teaching through Google, the Google Classroom, which is the suite of Google's education tools, They are creating mini data profiles. Um, There's a lawsuit out of the state of New Mexico which showed just how detailed those profiles are They're They're tracking students locations they're tracking off school behavior so where you go, you know you're not just in the class on YouTube, you know you're you're at home they're tracking that behavior and merging those profiles. They're tracking and recording students voices and this is all for right. When they become of age, they want to merge, you know, that data, have all the data on that user so that when you access the web, you know, the algorithm is serving you up all the ads, you know, by which Google makes 80% of its profits. So there is something to be said for all of the information we do not have on how. Uh, social media impacts the mental health of teens, and of course, it's not every teen, right? Every not every teen that gets on Snapchat or Instagram is going to have suicidal ideations, but it's becoming more and more clear that some some definitely are. And I think the last point I would make on this too is that, you know, oftentimes in this debate, I I, I interact with people who are like who have benefited greatly from the internet as it was when I grew up in the 1990s, right? When it was decentralized, when it was unmonetized, when it was community moderated, that is not the internet of today. And I cannot emphasize that enough. The internet of today is a series of, you know, vertically integrated walled gardens that are premised on addiction. And so when you, as the curious 14-year-old are trying to find cliff notes on the bell jar, you are going to be served up at some point, you know, algorithmic, uh, algorithmically served up videos from YouTube, you know, on methods of suicide, like that is how the algorithm works. And so we have to be able to talk about that. I do think there's a public policy interest in finding this information out. If you want to empower parents, you have to like let them behind the scenes to show, you know, what these platforms actually know. Um, and we, we got a taste of that when Francis Haugen who's a crazy leftist who you should never listen to her policy solutions, but the documents that she put out were actually somewhat useful in, in presenting the fact that Facebook and Instagram know how their platforms harm teens. So why aren't we talking about that? And is there a public policy interest here Uh, in the same way that, you know, the tobacco companies, you know, for, for a more sort of nineties analog, I suppose the tobacco companies were hiding information on how addictive their products were. So I'll throw that open because this is
0: still a controversial question on the right. No, it shouldn't be. And I've, I've, Like done a lot of research and writing on this question because I actually really think that this is a public health emergency and Ross Douthat had a really interesting response to Derek uh, Thompson's story in the Atlantic that Rachel is talking about where he said, you know, I, I think this misses some of the context about uh, you know the, the lack of uh, faith, or I think he might have said like the levels of people being unchurched, but that's happened in other, like there have been secular societies and we can have these conversations about history and whatever, but what's happening now is very different than anything that has ever happened before in the scope of human history. Um, we don't have to think about it in any other context except for that one. Um, and, and of course it's happening when we are also in this very postmodern era, and to some extent it's happening because of that, because because these these corporate leaders um, are so untethered to any sort of like basic, uh, true moral foundation. Of course, it's happening because of that. But we have literal slot machines. We have transferred our lives onto literal slot machines. And that means work, that means personal, that means professional, that means um, everything. I mean, like you're think about it. You, you do work over text, you do work over email, you do personal stuff over text. It is, it is incredible the amount of time people spend in front of screens, but also how our brains have quite literally been rewired intentionally by these companies to maximize their profits. Um, and, and that again, Tristan Harris, who did um, the social dilemma that sort of put this on a lot of people's radar, he was at Gmail trying to make the product more addictive to us. Like people think of it in terms of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, but like he was at freaking Gmail trying to make us spend more time on our emails, Um, this is everything. It is their profit model. They are now the American economy um, and teenagers are, this is like, that's why I think some of these, these questions to Ross's point, which I think is an interesting one. Like to me, they're so lower level than the fact that this is unprecedented evil Technology, um, pornography, the sum total of human knowledge, the access to every atrocity happening in every corner of the globe in the most vivid detail you can possibly see it, beheadings, whatever it is all on your phone at an instant, um, all on a platform designed to keep you scrolling. Um, Your self-esteem, your personal and professional, everything has been transferred onto a slot machine. We're in completely uncharted territory and there's a public health emergency. And Rachel asked a very specific question about what to do. Um, And honestly, I think the answer is like, we need to. There, there are policy solutions, but like broadly, parents need to be shaken, like physically shaken, and say, "Get, don't let your kid touch this while their brain is still developing."
3: Uh, so difficult act to follow. Uh, I mean, I, I I agree with basically everything Emily just said. Um, so I mean, I on the Newsweek podcast I host, I had on Ryan Anderson this week, and Ryan and I were talking about this a little bit. Actually, I, w- I was kind of saying how I took one of those you know, there's all these like various political quizzes, right? 60, 70 questions. It kind of spits you out like a five description identifier or whatever. Um, and one of the things like stood out from this one that I took a few months ago was like how much I apparently hate technology. Like I felt, you know, I felt like a Mennonite or like one of those guys, you know, back when like the transcontinental railroad was being built, you know, those people trying to like, you know, like hammer away like the railroad tracks to keep like the, you know, the the horse and buggy. Um, that's kind of what I felt like. Um, and, and that's not to say technology cannot be good, obviously. I mean, in a lot of ways, obviously, technology is good. And we should be too careful, obviously, about kind of downplaying um, the extent to, you know, to which increased technology and, and capitalism. I mean, to kind of use the old kind of uh, JFK and Reagan cliche, I mean, I, it, to an extent, it obviously does lift all boats. And we should be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But having said all that, um, in a lot of ways here, you know, we're now talking about um you know uh, differences in kind not differences in degree about what technology is doing to the human psyche about what it is doing to kind of the actual way that these developing brains work i think the i think the analogy to big tobacco is completely apt and by the way uh, when you have an addicting product of that nature that is what that is what necessarily calls for a public policy response um you know so things back when you know when senator holly was proposing like you know like legislation to either cut down or ban on websites that allow for like infinite scroll on Instagram feed. I think a lot of people at the time kind of like laughed at him and scoffed at him and were like, dude, like, what are you doing? This is like a second or Tier concern or tertiary concern, whatever. But if you if you take this premise seriously that this is that this, that this really is like analogous to big tobacco, then of course it's going to call for a for a public policy response. And I think things like bans on infinite scroll are like a very good place to start. But I, at the end of the day, here it is very difficult for parents to do this stuff on their own. They need some actual kind of heavy handed kind of common good to use the overall term, and common good oriented legislation to kind of take some of the slack off of parents who otherwise would have a next to impossible job of kind of keeping their children kind of properly innocent from all the horrific things on the internet until the age of 12, 13, or however old you're first exposed to this point?
1: So I'll go really micro here because everyone has hit these uh, very lofty and and deep and introspective sort of points and just say, um, we, we have a tablet for one of our kids, which I was loath to purchase, but as a parent, you know, that there are times where you have struggles with a three-year-old and you need 15 minute period to, you know, be able to do something, um, you know, you know otherwise be a human being. And, there, and then you actually look at what the games are for kids on these tablets. And then you look at who actually produces the games and, and what do you find like a, a huge percentage of apps, which, are totally seemingly non-threatening. You know, no uh, insidious indoctrination built into them at least upfront. Of course, it's a Chinese-based company that makes you know a substantial percentage of these apps, and of course, they, they start by promoting Chinese culture in some of these in ways that are com- again completely non-nefarious. But you can see they could get you hooked immediately from the time someone's three years old. Um, so, you know, I think one point that's worth making is you know, the kind of broad point of. Why are, why are people so unhappy and younger people so unhappy? Certainly, I mean, there's pro, there's likely something strong to the idea that we have material plenty, that the poorest among us today live better than Kings did 50 or 100 years ago, um, and yet we're still not happy. That there, there, there is something to that kind of materialist, idealist split. But then the other thing is, even if you had benevolent actors who were in charge of the major big tech companies, who actually had the, the public good in mind and were, you know, National conservatives, all of them. Still, the technologies themselves in that rewiring of the brain do incredible damage to the American mind, to the minds of people worldwide. And I think there's no escaping that. It's, it's manifestly a public policy question.
2: So I think we'll take it to final thoughts, and, and and this will be mine. I think going to Josh's point about how it does, you know, seem oh the right hates technology. We're all about a bunch of luddites, you know. I I, I get that kind of hurled at me all the time, and I think it's important to point out that it's false, right? Like we technology has improved our lives in many many ways. We are just now at a point where the technology itself, you know, the innovation itself has begun to reshape how we interact with the world it's it's begun to reshape the nature of self-government and what it means to even interact in the marketplace and when any technology gets to that point then it's time to take a step back and say no 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 like the innovation is is, is not in the driver's seat we are so what are the rules of the road going to be that's a collective decision that we make together we just we aren't reshaped in the image of google we aren't you know reshaped in the image of of you know whatever con- con- uh, technological control is trying to re- rewire our brains. And to Emily's point, that's exactly what's happening here. Um, our brains are just, are being changed. And so I do think it's worth pausing a, a moment to, to acknowledge that. And I think the internecine debate that, that goes on on the right about these questions often fails to even acknowledge that, that you know, that happens. I think, again, people push forward this notion of the internet is still like the chat rooms and, uh, you know, closed, uh, I don't even, message boards that we all used to engage on, except for Emily, she's too young. Um, Rachel right, so just <laughs> earlier, here, like, planning the... <laughs> for
0: AIM to come back.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. But like the internet's changed, right? So our policy needs to change, too. That's
0: my final thought, so. Well, I think it's interesting, because you sound a lot like Jack Dorsey when you say that, and, and this is what Jack Dorsey is increasingly talking about when he says the internet used to be decentralized, um, and that's why he's, like, just pursuing bitcoin with every breath in his body at this point um but no, it's interesting, and I'm not a policy person to the extent that a lot of you guys are, um, but that's why when people ask about policy solutions to big tech, I it's overwhelming to me because there's something so much bigger at play, um, which is, I know I, I harp on this all the time, but it's the hyper novelty that Brett Weinstein and Heather Hang wrote about in their, their book that was released last year, which is that technology is now outpacing our ability to adapt. Um, and again, these are like actual evolutionary biologists who wrote this book. And the evidence is, is pretty obvious. And it's not just the last 15 years, although that's been an incredible, uh, an incredibly accelerated rate of technological development. It's the last several hundred years um, at least. Uh, and uh, Catholics love it when I like when I make this argument because they, uh, as a Lutheran, tell me, you know, I'm, I'm going right back to the printing press. Um, but the the point is. Um, um, this is this is something that is, all of our political problems right now, like, do you wanna talk about QAnon? Okay, whatever, we can talk about QAnon, but this is downstream of something so much bigger and more immediate, like that is not our problem. Um, our, our problem is that you know, we, we're gonna have people growing up who have you know, no ability to pay attention enough to read through an email. Um, so this is just like, it's much deeper, but it's also so immediate um, that it, it's the policy solution to me is everybody suddenly realizing that we are in a, an enormously perilous moment and they should change their personal behavior accordingly. There are policy solutions and you guys have lots of good ideas for them. And I think there are really good ideas for them. But for me, it is stunning, the, the sort of numbness that we have uh, to the problems that have been caused by technology is uh, technologies in the, the sort of smartphone social media era.
3: So, in kind of weaving together some of the segments that we talked about today, so I think back to the last segment and kind of the example that I gave of like the Senator Hawley legislation to kind of cut down or ban infinite scroll, um, which might seem like an obscure issue, but it's kind of, um, you know, it's an avowedly kind of national interest, health of the whole approach to public policy that does not particularly care about kind of, you know, like idiosyncratic conceptions of what like a various companies form of freedom is. And, you know, I, I kind of draw a direct line from that, obviously, to the segment that I did too, as far as, as, far as what's happening in kind of, um, you know, the European countries in Israel. I mean, in Hungary, For instance, the the people want to be sovereign, okay? The people don't want kind of the tech companies to be sovereign, they don't want Brussels to be sovereign, they wanna be sovereign. In Israel, it looks like the reason that they might be going to election soon is because the people don't want like a Muslim Brotherhood affiliate Islamist party in the governing coalition. In France, the reason that Emmanuel Macron may be in trouble in this upcoming runoff election is because the French people don't wanna be overrun by massive, massive amounts of not easily assimilated immigration that has obviously led to some horrific events, such as like the mass shooting, obviously, in the theater in 2015, if I recall the precise year there. So I I, I guess the common theme here, um, if I can kind of like roughly kind of tie the strands together from these segments is that what we basically need are our people, are our, our, our politicians, our leaders, legislators, um, statesmen, and if you kind of uh, go one step further and extrapolate to, to judging, that's kind of my whole kind of common good originalism side project, what we need are basically public facing actors who actually act on behalf of the national interest, who actually are looking at the health of the entire political community of what Aristotle would call the polis in mind. That is kind of like the sin qua non, I think, of what like NatCon holds itself out to be. And I think we kind of saw that kind of weave itself through the various segments today as well.
1: Um, So I'll just say, maybe somewhat relatedly in that spirit, I'd commend everyone to check out uh, David Mamet's latest piece in Tablet, which is one of the more based things you can read. And essentially what he's arguing is that people need to speak openly and honestly about the corruption and fraudulence of our ruling class. And as I've talked about before, it's not clear to me, and maybe it's clear to viewers and and all of you, whether a ruling class is totally hegemonic or completely weak. And that's why it has to engage in all of these sort of tyrannical acts to try to chill people into silence rather than speaking freely and openly about what they see with their own eyes, whether it's, the corruption of our national security and law enforcement apparatus, whether it's the whole groomer uh, contra attempts that's been going on, or any of a million other issues in our daily life. Um, so I, I commend everyone to check out that piece um, and a couple other things. Rachel alluded to this uh, to January 6th, and the the revelation there also damning for the federal government is that one January 6th defendant, I, I believe it was the first. Was acquitted on all charges of these essentially trumped up trespassing charges and this could lead to potentially although the other judges are not like-minded at all potentially lead to a whole mass of people who are acquitted on those trumped up charges this individual said that the cops waved him in and there's been plenty of corroborating video to show that dozens if not hundreds of people were waved into the capitol that day by police on the premises and that he was there for 10 minutes and then left and a judge found that to be a compelling case Uh, Contra, again, the insurrection narrative, at least for this percentage of nonviolent people. And yet, as I'll point out, those two Iranian, potential Iranian agents who I mentioned were let out on bail into the custody, I believe, of relatives. And yet still, there are dozens of, in many cases, nonviolent people with no criminal background languishing in pretrial detention under horrible and abusive, by all accounts, conditions associated with January 6th, who remain in jail while these two potential Iranian agents are out free on bail. And that injustice is a, is a running theme that we talk about really every week here. And I think that is one of the things that sticks in the craw more than anything for the American people. We don't often articulate it, but I think there's a deep sense of an injustice when it comes to our ruling class versus those of us unfortunate enough to be ruled by them. And I think that is a motivating force, even if it's not spoken all that frequently. Last thing I'll point out on an optimistic note, uh, the kids at the University of Chicago, at least a couple of them associated with the Chicago Thinker, did just a tremendous job completely exposing the fraudulence of our ruling class mm-hmm. in their obsession with purported disinformation uh, during that disinformation conference featuring uh, held by David Axelrod and featuring Barack Obama and Ann Applebaum and many others as well. Kudos to them. They did an exceptional job with very simple, basic, fundamental questions exposing the fraudulence of our rolling class. And again, you know, the question of, are they weak or strong? The fact that they so failed to be able to answer basic questions about Hunter Biden's laptop and the like, just, just shows you the fraudulence of the entire game that they're engaged in to try to subjugate all of us. So the, the key takeaway there, keep speaking truth, do it fearlessly and with courage, it'll inspire others to do more and it will further expose this rolling class and maybe topple this rolling class.
2: I love ending on that note right? Keep speaking truth and being fearless. So with that, (laughs) on behalf of Ben, Emily, Josh, myself, I'm Rachel Bovard. We'll see you on the next NatCom Squad.